We're going to be in Psalm 88 this morning. Uh, so I want to go ahead and invite you to turn there and remind you if you're visiting with us uh, both that we're really glad you're here and that we'd love to give you a copy of the Bible if you don't own one. It, the Bible is what guides everything we're trying to do as a congregation and it's what's going to guide everything we're about to do in the next little bit of time here together. So it'd be very helpful for you to have that for this morning, but, but also in general as you consider what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, we've provided those Bibles at the center of each aisle up under those chairs. You can flag somebody down who's sitting under, on, on top of the Bibles and they can pass one down to you if you need one. Well, I mentioned earlier that uh, it's fall now. It's October 1st. Do you guys realize that? We, turned, we flipped the calendar one more month over. It's the month of Halloween, which I don't really understand. Never have. I don't get the whole attraction of the costumes and the, the creepiness and the, I mean, the candy, I guess, makes sense. But a lot of the other, the other parts of it has never really made sense to me. I'm trying to, to be a good sport about it and to get into it because my kids are into it. I'm, I'm, I'm doing that work. I'm trying. Maybe it comes easier for you. I don't know if you guys like uh, creepy stories, for example. I'm not really into those, but I do make one exception. And that one exception is the stories of a man named Edgar Allan Poe. You guys might have come in contact with Poe through that Nevermore poem that gets assigned a lot in high schools, the one with the crow or the raven. Uh, But maybe you didn't know that Edgar Allan Poe is the author of some of the most uh, celebrated creepy fiction in American history. That he was a a writer of lots of dark stories. And there's one particular theme in a lot of his dark and creepy stories that comes up over and over again. Something he seemed to be obsessed with. That's the theme of, of being buried alive. Uh, Google, here, if, if, if you haven't experienced this with Poe yet, just Google, write this down. Google Fall of the House of Usher. You'll find a free version of it. It's one of his short stories. Read it this afternoon and enjoy. Uh, it's a theme that comes up over and over. In fact, this week I, I came across uh, uh, something he published back in 1850 that was sort of a story and sort of, a, sort of nonfiction. It was just this collection. It's, it's, a, it's an essay called Premature Burial, and it's just a collection of one after another reports that he's gotten from all over the world of times where people were buried alive. He seems to have been really, really scared, and I don't think he was the only one. I also read that, that actually during the time that Poe was alive, apparently it may have happened, this sort of thing happened, people were afraid of it at least, and one of the things they would do is, is they would make sure that there was a bell next to their, their gravestone, and a cord that would run down from that bell into their coffin, in case they were to wake up in there, they would be able to pull the string on that bell and let people outside know that they were in there. Yeah, I, I don't know what to do with that, but that was, I just thought that was interesting. Maybe not for you guys so much. Poe seems to have been really, actually literally afraid of the fate of, of being buried alive, but Apart from that literal possibility, I, I see, I don't know if he meant for this to be seen, but in these stories where this happens to some of his characters, a pretty powerful metaphor for what it actually feels like to live in despair. Um, in, in fact, I came across an article this week uh, from an old story called The Anatomy of Melancholy in the New Yorker. Not a story, actually, just a a first-person account of a person's life with severe depression. And uh, included a quote from a guy at a recovery group that this person attended for a while that described his experience just like this. It's it's straight out of Poe. 
I feel as though I died a few weeks ago and my body just hasn't found out yet. This feeling of being buried alive, of, of, of a kind of living death, still conscious but cut off from life and its beauty, from other people, ultimately even from God, trapped in darkness and despair with no way out and no hope for the future. That's the subject of Psalm 88. I think this psalm is here to help us relate to God. What we said about the psalms in general is that they're here to help us relate to God in all experiences and seasons of life, that they are remarkably diverse in the kinds of personal feelings and experiences they express. Psalm 88 is one of the best examples I know of the truth, that truth about the psalms, that everything's in here somewhere. And this psalm is here in particular to help us put words to an experience that many of you have had. To help us see what it looks like to relate to God when you can't see out. It's been said by one commentator that there is no sadder prayer in the Psalter than this one. Another commentator describes this psalm as a monologue thrown against a dark and terrifying void, beginning and ending with unanswered cries to God. What I want to do with our time together this morning is walk through this psalm as the anatomy of despair. So if you're depressed this morning, then what I hope you'll see in this psalm is a fellow sufferer. I hope you'll see someone whose experience sounds like yours. I want to let the psalm speak on its terms, even let it end in darkness as it does. As a kind of true statement of this, both of this person's experience and perhaps your experience too. And only then, once we've been able to, to see it speaking and hear it speaking on its terms, once we've understood best we can what this person experienced, only then I want us to look together through this dark and this sad psalm to see some hope on the other side of it. I want to begin by reading the whole thing. And then we're going to describe what despair feels like and where to look for hope. Would you stand with me now in honor of God's word while I read? This is the word of the Lord from Psalm 88. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You've made me a horror to them.
I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, I I cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Oh, Lord, why? Why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want us to begin first by looking at what despair feels like from this psalm. To hear this writer speak and then to look for our own experience in what he said. What despair feels like, and I've I've already summarized it for you. I think this comes from the psalm pretty clearly. Despair feels like a living death. Like being buried alive. Like being cut off from the world, but still conscious enough to recognize and agonize over it. That's the image that this psalm gives us, and I want to help you see it in its language and, and, and hopefully through that see your own experience more clearly. Begins with this opening plea, God of my salvation. Listen to my prayer. Let this one get through. And then he switches in verse 3 to describing what he feels. His soul is full of trouble. He's heavy, weighed down, burdened. So much so that he feels like his life draws near to Sheol. That was the Hebrew word for the place of the dead. Only in this case, I don't think he's talking about an actual near-death experience. There are psalms that are like that, that cry out from a place of extreme vulnerability, from enemies around pressing in, trying to take the psalmist's life. Here, I don't think it's a literal near-death experience that he's talking about, but the feeling of being near death The feeling of of a living death, psychological death is what he's feeling. He's awake, he's aware, but his life feels emptied of meaning and purpose and joy and even relationships. It's a life that has no life at all. Verses four to six give us this image. He's not going down to the pit, but he's counted among those who who are. He's like one set loose among the dead. It's like he looks around and that's all he sees. He's like the slain that lie in the grave. He may as well be in a grave, is what he's telling you. He's not close to death, but he feels that way. He feels cut off from God's hand, put down into the depths of a pit that he can't climb out of, surrounded only by darkness. He lies there among the slain. It's remarkable to me how timeless this description of despair actually is. We use the word depression more often. 
I probably use that some this morning just interchangeably with despair. I don't mean to use it in any sense that's clinical or precise. Uh, I understand that there are precise definitions out there and I'll just trust you not to hear them in my words. What's remarkable though is what people who are struggling with depression say today about their experience, how closely it resembles what this person wrote about thousands of years ago. This week I came across a passage from Elizabeth Wurzel's memoir, Prozac Nation. I can't recommend the whole book. I haven't read the whole book and don't know, can't speak to all of its contents. But I thought this passage that I came across was really striking in light of what the psalmist writes. This was a, a, a young woman, privileged, successful, a Harvard grad, a New Yorker writer, but was chronically depressed, cycling from one drug to another one. She describes living as, a, as certain, quite certain, this is a quote, that I was already dead. The actual dying part, the withering away in my physical body was just a formality. My spirit, my emotional being, whatever you want to call that inner turmoil that has nothing to do with physical existence, they were long gone, dead and gone. Depression, she goes on to say, is different from, from a kind of normal sadness about sorrow and loss and pain in life. There's a normal sadness that everyone everywhere is going to experience because of the way the world is. Depression is something different, she writes, an altogether different zone because depression involves a complete absence, absence of effect, absence of feeling, absence of response. For all intents and purposes, the deeply depressed, she writes, are just the walking, waking dead. It sounds remarkably similar, doesn't it? to what this ancient writer felt. To be set loose among the dead, cut off from the living. I think this is a really useful way of thinking about despair, of describing what depression feels like. Because I think this description of being cut off completely, of being among the waking, walking dead, as Wurzel put it, nails two things that are common to the struggle with depression that come through in this psalm and maybe in your own experience. The first one is that it's a feeling of being cut off, isolated from everything. I mean, death, that's what death is. It's to be separated from all the joys of life, from friends and family, and and, and in some cases, from God. And that's what the depressed person feels like every day. Separated from friends, verse 8 You've caused my companions to shun me and made me a horror to them. Verse 18, you've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. His friends don't want anything to do with him. Maybe it's that they don't get what he's going through and don't want his mess in their lives. Maybe it's that they want to understand, but they just can't. Maybe it's that they're afraid of what they can't see or control. Maybe they just blame him for his problems. Whatever the cause, he feels like he's got nothing but, pro- but trouble to offer his friends. A problem that his friends are desperate to avoid. He has become a horror to them. That's what he feels. He feels cut off from God too. You have put me in the depths of the pit, he writes. Your wrath lies heavy on me. You have caused my companions to shun me. He prays to him, why have you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? He feels cut off from God. For the believer, suffering like this has a unique challenge to it that an unbeliever doesn't necessarily have to grapple with. An unbeliever 
may see the depressed person as enjoying a moment of clarity, an actual recognition of all that's wrong, that we are alone in the universe, that we are cut off inescapably from, from others and, and there's no reason to expect anything different. But the believer knows that God is out there somewhere, but inaccessible, unhearing, in some way responsible for the pain. The psalmist's description captures that sense in depression of being isolated, cut off. The other thing that his description of, of, of the, the, the buried alive description captures so well that it's common to despair is a feeling of being trapped, of being buried with no future. Verse 8, I am shut in so that I cannot escape. Verse 7 has said, you overwhelm me with your waves. It's an image of drowning, of water as suffocating and inescapable. Verse 17, same thing. God's assaults surround me like a flood. They close in on me together. You can just feel the claustrophobia of this man's experience. That he has nowhere to turn. That everywhere he reaches, he feels walls. As if he's trapped in a coffin underground. And this feeling of being trapped in your isolation with no way out and hopeless and helpless to change your future is a crucial part of what depression feels like. What does it feel like? What is despair? It feels like being buried alive. Helpless and hopeless and alone, unseen, unheard, unnoticed, unloved, unreachable. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe you haven't. And if you haven't, thanks be to God. If you haven't, I will say, dog ear this psalm because you, you may someday. And even if not, I can almost guarantee you that people sitting close to you this morning, people in your life, have and maybe are it's right now feeling this way. Do you feel like this now? If you do, I want to I point you in a minute here to some hopeful insights from this sad psalm. I do think this psalm gives us some kind of buried stones on which we can plant our feet to shove for the surface. It doesn't leave us alone and helpless as dark as it ends. But before we even do that, if, if, if you're feeling buried alive this morning, before we even get to where you can find hope in this psalm, I want to encourage you to talk to somebody today about what you're feeling. Uh, not all depression is the same. Comes, it's, it's complicated. Uh, and, and I'm certainly no expert on it. But I've read enough to know that it comes from all sorts of sources, that it's fed by all sorts of circumstances, that your body may be part of it, hormones or your genes or your food that you're, that you're eating or your sleep or lack thereof or whether or not you've been out in the sun lately. There's all sorts of things from your body that can contribute to it that your circumstances can contribute to it, experience of loss or the fear of loss or stress at work or too long, working, as one person has put it, too long and too hard without a break or a breakthrough. There's a lot of things that could be weighing in and so you need to talk to somebody. Get somebody else 
inside that inner treadmill that you've been running on. Let them ask you questions. Let them pay attention to what you say. Let them speak into what you're dealing with. Because what, be, what you might be believing this morning, friends, what your depression may be telling you is that everybody else around you is happy, living perfect lives, getting exactly what they want from the world. And that's a lie. It's a lie. You're surrounded right now by friends who have been there. So I want to invite you specifically, I want to invite you to, to come talk to me after the sermon's over. Talk to any one of the other elders that are here in the room this morning. And we won't be the answer men that can get you right, but we will enter in with you and we will connect you with others who can enter in with you this morning. And, and we'd love for you to do that today before you leave here. Now, what, what I want to do with the last few minutes that we have is, is look through the darkness of this psalm to a couple of rays of light that I do believe enter in. A couple of things we can do with this psalm and especially, I, I, actually, I'm, I'm just going to address you directly. If, if you feel this morning like you are where the writer of this psalm was, then I, I'm just going to speak to you for the last few minutes. What can you do with this psalm if you're where this writer was and you feel buried alive, cut off from everything and everyone? I want to give you three things you can do with this psalm. Here's the first one. You can use these words. There, there is something therapeutic, even hopeful, about putting words to what you feel and experience. Sometimes you can feel so exhausted by despair that you can't think straight, much less put what you think into words that anyone else can understand, even words that you can understand. One of my struggles when I'm, when I'm low is... Is, is usually just an internal churning, fighting for some sort of words that can bring mastery to what I feel. And that's exhausting. It's like a treadmill, I'm telling you. You're running on it nonstop. And sometimes when you do get a breakthrough and you feel like, oh, that's how I'd want to say that to somebody, there's this breath that comes, this breath of fresh air, this, this sense of rest almost. And in this psalm, I think one of the reasons it's here for us is that it can put words to what you experience that you may not be able to supply for yourself right now. Use these words. They're a reminder to you that you are not the only one who's been where you are. You're not misunderstood, but understood wonderfully well by writers that God put here to tell you that. I think this psalm especially is for you. If you're feeling what he felt. Uh, one writer that I read this week n- noticed how you know, a lot of the Psalms talk about despair in this way. But then they, they, they take a turn at some point in the Psalm and they end happy. And that if you're really depressed and you're reading along with that Psalm and you feel like you've got a, an ally here, you've got a comrade, somebody who gets it. Then they take their turn into that happy ending and you've got you to step out at that point. You've got to hop off that plane. You can't go with them. Uh, that's not this psalm. You know, the line that it ends with, my translation says, my companions have become darkness. It has a little footnote. And what I'm reading, most everybody says that the, the better way to say it is that my only friend is darkness. The only friend I've got. That's where it ends. This is a psalm you can use right now without qualification 
And that's why God gave it to you. So that's the first thing I do with this psalm. Use its words to describe yourself. Here's the second thing I would do. Pray these words to God. Just like the psalmist did. Depression is, is always, always involves a turning inward. By nature, it, it feeds and embraces and encourages the isolation that can, can come sometimes bring it on. It's this vicious cycle. It's self-reinforcing. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And many of the Psalms, this Psalm in particular, what they're here for is to help us both be honest, to put real, true words to what we experience and not pretend, but to take those words, that honest description of ourselves, and turn it from looking inward at myself, outward and upward to God. This Psalm is a way of bringing God in on what you feel. There's a book that I want to recommend to you. I've got a couple copies back here on the resource table. It's called Depression. Uh, it's by a man named Edward Welch, a Christian counselor. Uh, found it to be very helpful. Um, there's a couple of copies back here. We'd love for you to take one if it would be helpful to you or helpful for you in caring for someone else that's struggling with this. Here's, here's something that, that Welch writes in that book about psalms like this one. He says, What these psalms do is straighten the trajectory of our lives. Using the words he gives us, God gently turns our hearts toward him. Instead of everything bending back into ourselves, we're able to look straight outside of ourselves and to fix our eyes on Jesus. Later he writes, Faith is not the presence of warm religious feeling. That's so important to know, friends. Don't think that you getting better, that you living with faith right now in depression means you feeling better. It might not. Faith is not the presence of warm religious feeling, Welch writes. It's the knowledge that you walk before the God who hears. Read Psalm 88, he says. Notice how it ends with darkness is my closest friend. We don't think of this as an expression of faith. But when you say it to the God who hears it, it's heroic faith. And friends, that's the faith that this psalm models. It does not come with a happy ending. But it does have built into it a sense of hope. Because even though this psalmist isn't getting through, even though he feels like God's ear is not inclined to his prayer, to use his language, he keeps on praying anyway. He's all in on God as the only option for him. And he's relentless. Verse 1, God of my salvation. Right there, a statement of faith. Day and night I cry out before you. Verse 13, I cry to you, O Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes for you. He wakes up every morning. When you're in depression, when you're struggling, the mornings are awful because if you are able to sleep at all, when you wake back up, you realize you're still living in the same world that you went to bed with and it's not a world that you want. And the psalmist is there. And when he wakes up every morning, his prayer goes up before God. And throughout it all, even when he doesn't understand God's ways, he asks some questions. 
It's a way of bringing God into his experience. Why have you cast my soul away? And there's a built-in challenge to God. He's saying he thinks God has cast his soul away. But at least he's asking God about it. At least he's going there. Why do you hide your face from me? He says. I think it's because there is at least some hope in knowing as he does that God was involved in bringing him to this place. Because knowing that, verse 6, God put him there. Verse 7, it's God's waves that overwhelm him. Verse 8, it's God who caused his friends to shun him. Verse 15, it's your terrors that I suffer. Knowing that God is behind it. Helps him to believe that God is powerful enough to bring his redemption out of it. He brought the pain. He can bring the healing. Much more hopeless if you just see the suffering you're experiencing right now as just part of what it is to be part of a broken world. To live in a godless, closed universe. Now that's hopelessness, friends. There's hope that comes from knowing that someone can do something, even if they haven't yet. Even if they're involved in how you got where you got. So use these words. Pray these words directly to God, even if you don't feel like His ear is hearing you. And then finally, listen for his answer in Jesus. We are in a different place than the writer of this psalm. We can't pretend like we don't live, speaking to Christians especially here, we can't pretend like we don't live on our side of Jesus. In fact, the New Testament encourages us On its surface, the New Testament encourages us to look at Jesus and to see him as God's answer to prayers like this one. Why have you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? And in Christ, we see and hear God saying, I haven't, I won't. Because what the New Testament tells us about Jesus is that he is the best, most complete and most clear Word from God to us about who God is, about what God loves, about how God feels towards you if you trust Him. He is the final message from God about Himself. And what did Jesus tell us about God? Well, at the very least, Jesus' life the very fact that he came and the things that he experienced while he was here had the power to put to rest two concerns you may have about your despair. First, if God has come for us in Christ, if Jesus tells us who God is and what he's like and what he's done, then Jesus, God's answer in Christ, puts to rest one of your perhaps one of your main concerns it tells you 
that he is not indifferent to your pain, but he chose to experience it himself. In fact, I'd encourage you this afternoon to read back through Psalm 88 and to think about what you know of Jesus' life and experience, especially the night that he died. And to imagine Jesus praying this prayer that you may need to pray for yourself. Jesus was, in fact, counted among those who go down to the pit. God's wrath did lie heavy on him, not because he deserved it, but because he willingly took it on for you. His friends and companions did actually shun him. One betrayed him, one denied him, and the rest of them just ran from him when he needed them most. God did actually turn his face away as his son literally spread his hands before his father and said, why have you forsaken me? And got silence. And he did enter into a grave where he was buried as a dead man, cut off from all beauty, all goodness, all relationship, all life. There is nothing you experience now that he did not experience. Not because he had to, but because he chose to. Whatever else God is doing in your life, know this, he is not indifferent to your pain. And know this, secondly, that he has the power to bring you out of it. Jesus woke up in a tomb. He was really dead. Then he was really alive. With a body as real as yours or mine. He woke up buried alive. And he came out. And in his experience that mirrors yours. And in his resurrection that foreshadows yours. He has offered you the promise. That there is nothing that can separate you from God's love. That there is no pit so deep he cannot lift you out of it. There is no coffin in which you feel trapped, feeling for any escape that he cannot shatter, from which he cannot raise you up. And he did all of this. He lived. He died. He rose. So that you will not have to be alone. So that he can offer you the promise that you are in covenant, bound in relationship to him. A relationship that nothing can break, not even your despair. Whatever else God might be doing in your life, he is not drowning you with his waves. And he will not leave you where you are. Father, I pray that You would help friends who are struggling right now in darkness they can't see through to trust what your word says more than they trust what they can see or feel. And I pray that you would help us who are gathered around them as friends to know how we can encourage them. To do that with empathy and intelligence. To do it carefully and lovingly. And to point them to a hope they may not be able to see for themselves. I pray that your word for this morning would do that work that you'd help us each individually to take it up and carry it forward now. In Jesus' name.
Amen.